and welcome to Fueling the Transition, a series of podcasts from A3 Management Consulting. My name's Matt Brown. I'm Vice President in the Energy part of Management Consulting, and we're going to be talking about decarbonization, digitalization, and decentralization, and the impacts those themes are having on energy systems. And I'm joined today by my well-known and well-respected colleague, Stephen Woodhouse, who's an expert in many areas of the energy market, but particularly in electricity market design. Welcome, Stephen. Matt, good morning. I'm going to start with a general question about where we're headed in electricity markets. I think it's a fascinating topic at this time. So what's your, what's your vision? What's the future you see for electricity markets as we think about decarbonization, digitalization, decentralization, that are the trends and the topic that we discuss so often, what's your vision? So whether this is the direction of travel is an open question, but I can certainly paint an optimistic vision of a power system and a wider economy in which we decarbonize We use electricity as one of the primary vectors to decarbonize other sectors such as transport and heating, and hydrogen will certainly be in there too, and that we move away from the existing philosophy of predicting customers' desires and building and scheduling infrastructure to meet those desires to a world where the production facilities are weather-dependent. We don't need to gold plate grids, and instead instead we use digital tools to adapt the customer's preferences and needs to meet the capabilities of the grid. So a very optimistic, smart grid world where we don't overbuild capacity. Give an example of what that might look like, make it real. So as an example, as we electrify transport, Most people don't have smart meters, and even if they do, they don't have time of use tariffs. So they come home and plug in their car. If everybody plugs in their car at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., that coincides with the peak. We will have to build trillions of euros worth of distribution infrastructure to cover a relatively small additional energy load, maybe 20% of the electricity system in terawatt hour terms, but it could be really important in terms of grid requirements. And that grid would be badly utilized. And if you want to plug in your car at 6 p.m., which many people would, well, your solar production at that time is zero in in the winter months. And you may or may not be coinciding with a windy period. So in order to meet those needs, or let me say desires, we would also have to build a lot of redundant generation capacity that would only be running in those hours when people wish to charge at the peak and when it wasn't windy. If we can get customers to use the flexibility of a battery in a car to charge at the time when the system can accommodate their needs, when the energy is being generated from renewable sources and when there isn't congestion on the local grid, then we can electrify transport with almost no changes in the underlying energy infrastructure at all. So there is a very cheap and economically and environmentally efficient way of doing it. If we do it in the alternative way, where the customer plugs in when they want to and the system must meet their their desires, 
Well, frankly, that's not compatible with a zero carbon energy future. It's not compatible with using renewables to fuel our cars. So it feels to me that we have to move in this direction if we're to achieve the goals that we're setting on decarbonisation. We've been uh, working in the industry for a long time. I think in the context of this vision of the future, how things have to change, I would like to explore a little bit the objectives, the high-level objectives of uh, liberalised open electricity markets and, and maybe go back to the very earliest days when the first electricity markets were being created, were being put in place. What were the main objectives? What was it about? Well, the original objective was actually quite straightforward. It was about coordinating efficient dispatch of generation and setting protocols that allowed investment decisions to be taken place in in a transparent environment. So it was about privatising the investment and using commercial incentives to get efficiencies within the short-term operation. So a combination of short-term and long-term efficiency gains. And the regulatory framework was built around that. The role of an independent regulator, rather than in the old days, the government's dictating prices, was that they were supposed to be taking into account future consumers and therefore the needs of investors, not just short-term consumers' preferences. So balancing the economics of the short and the long term. And of course, in that original set of objectives, environment wasn't mentioned. And that, that I guess, is the, you know, is the big change of where we are today. So I suppose in, the, in that context, what should the objectives be now? for delivering the market design we need for the future? Well, when I look at competitive energy markets, it's a little bit like democracy. You can engineer the right set of laws, but unless you have competition and freedom, you don't have a mechanism to ensure that you've got the right set of laws going forward. So when I look at the very centralised market designs, and Britain was the first country in Europe to begin with a liberalised power market, we had a centralised design. It was fit for the 1990s. By the early 2000s, we ripped it out and replaced it with something much more free market, allowing actors in the market to do much a much wider variety of things. And that choice is something in its own right, which is important. We're moving to a world where people are bundling electricity with a car. And that happened with Tesla in 2014, by the way. There's no reason you couldn't bundle electricity with the purchase of a washing machine and have the aggregator, the seller of the washing machines or the producer of the washing machines being an aggregator for the electric heating load of the water in the washing machines across Europe. So I don't think we can centrally define what the right arrangements are. We need to offer wide range of freedoms to allow the market to discover the right economic answer going forward. So economic efficiency is no longer about least cost. It's about maximising the value added over the cost. So I think that that's one of the core things that's changed. We're no longer just about minimising cost, but maximising value. And of course, we also have the environmental dimension, which changes things again. So how do we best deliver that? That you know these objectives. I would challenge a little bit this vision of the future, whereby everything is possible, you know, and what the framework is for, you know, such freedom in the market with so many 
actions taking place needed to take place, so many interactions taking place and so many actors in a market. In an environment where we have such pressures on the environment, some people have said, why not move back to a single buyer model where we can plan in an integrated resource planning sort of way what needs to happen rather than design a set of frameworks? What's your thought on that? The world is fragmenting. The resources which will be delivering the necessary system services are changing rapidly. I don't think a central system, a central buyer, a central set of procurements could capture the range of future possibilities that we need to run our system. I like to draw analogies between the, you know, the, the transport system, and by that I mean private cars, and the, and the electricity system. Can you imagine if we applied the level of regulation that we have in electricity to the road network or vice versa? So in Britain, on the road network, people are free to get in their car whenever they want and drive wherever they want. And if they cause congestion, so be it. So people are totally free to waste years of their life sitting in traffic jams if they choose. By the way, they're also totally free to kill themselves on the road and several thousand die every year. So I would say compared to many other forms of modern life, the electricity sector is incredibly tightly regulated and in the wider scheme of things, probably rather more regulated than it should be. Maybe we should devote some of that regulatory attention to other spheres of life rather than to electricity. So the future of electricity is at the heart of our society. But for example, Britain has a central planning standard and a central transmission system operator. And through a series of unfortunate events last, last summer, on August the 9th, National Grid was obliged to issue instructions to distribution companies to cut 5% of demand. And that, for various reasons, caused more chaos than perhaps it should have done. We're not supposed to have a 100% reliable system. It would be prohibitively expensive. But nevertheless, that was headline news and caused a lot of disruption. I wonder what percentage of the system demand at that moment was made up of air conditioning and refrigeration units. If we could have cut the refrigeration and the air conditioning units, and I think the duration would have been a maximum of 30 minutes and much of it was far shorter, would we ever have had to have literally cut off customers almost indiscriminately? I think the future of our system needs us to capture the diversity. We need to break away from these, you know, 1980s concepts of reliability standards, value of lost load, universal levels of reliability. I don't need my fridge and my electric car charger to have the same level of reliability as my broadband router. And, you know, this was science fiction 20 years ago, but it definitely isn't now. What would a market design look like that was enabling all this to happen in the future? Following on from that, what it would look like, how do we get from where we are today to that world? It certainly only works if you have competition in the markets. We're getting increasing congestion on transmission and distribution networks. So there's even a debate in European circles about whether we can have proper marketplaces for redispatch and for location-specific services at the generation level. That whole argument falls away if the demand side is actively participating in all of those marketplaces. 
I could look at any market anywhere in the world and say almost without looking, by the way, you're not doing enough to incorporate demand side participation in your market. And I mean demand side participation under lots of circumstances and at different price points, not just emergency action. So step one is to introduce the demand side firmly and get more competition around all of the different products and services and locations. Metering and measurement is important. So Britain is committing to a 12 billion white elephant of installing smart meters, which don't even feed through to wholesale settlement, which renders them, frankly, pointless in my view. If I were designing a smart meter program, you would record multiple timeframes, and that would be a parameter. So if we move from 30 minute to 15 minute to five minute settlement in the future, and all of these things are being discussed in other places, that would be a firmware upgrade, not a rip out the meter and start again problem. So you would design flexibility into the timeframes, and you would also meter multiple channels. So looking forward to the world where your EV charger is dealt with by one supplier and your solar panels are dealt with by somebody else, and maybe you've got to deal with Bosch for the fridge aggregation and they're doing something else, I would have meters having multiple channels and flexible timeframes. And once you've got that kind of granularity on the data, you can then start introducing appropriate pricing arrangements. The other thing I would do is immediately review the arrangements for network pricing and access. We're starting to see problems already with people wanting EV chargers at their homes and on the lowest voltage networks. So I applied for a charger at my house. The company looked at my local transformer and I share it with one or two other people. And they said, today there's up to 18 kilowatts free capacity, but it's basically first come first served. And I've got a seven kilowatt charger at home. Once my neighbors are looking for additional chargers, and maybe it will never be a problem at my transformer, but it might at the next, you get into a point where in order to give you a connection, they have to make a major upgrade. They might want to charge you a lot of money on that, or it might get smeared somehow across the wider network users. But that's to allow me to do the worst, which is to charge at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. If I commit not to doing that, they don't have to spend the money. So we need to have a look at how we allocate network capacity. When somebody, even at the domestic level, is applying to connect something, the presumption is that they have the right to use it whenever they want. But we know that the grid companies can't really accommodate that because it would cause congestion. But instead of having the principle that people have firm access, and we might then have to find compensation markets to buy back their firm access, maybe we need to be offering the new connections some form of non-firm access. So I could have a charger, but it would be conditional on not using it under certain circumstances. Maybe there'd be some predefined compensation under certain circumstances. And also the level that I pay for my grid capacity should reflect the quantity I need and the quantity I need at the peak times. So we need to get much more inventive about network capacity and network charging at the distribution level. Could you see a, a future where perhaps you've got pricing much more locational to recognize that? Maybe it's impossible, but perhaps a price at the top of the street to recognize the potential for constraints in the local area. And I know when I've raised that in some countries, 
people are horrified by the idea that people would pay different prices, especially, say, France. People would pay different prices for electricity in different locations. But uh, could you see that as a, as a far future where it could be much more complicated than we currently have it? I mean, in principle, the models we have for demand side in electricity are broken. We treat the demand side as a part of the supply curve. In any other sector, demand response is having a sloping demand curve. And the nature of demand response is like this. Ah, that looks expensive. I don't want it. So we do need to move demand side to being that kind of model, to be reacting to prices rather than offering services in as if they were generators. And then they maybe have to somehow frame their capabilities to look like generators. Whether you can really get location specific, you know, we're talking nodal pricing at the distribution level. It is economically desirable, but challenging in lots of ways. So even at the transmission level, I'm not a great believer in the nodal pricing world. It gives you super efficient dispatch at a moment in time based on the offers and bids you have in front of you, assuming they're all basically um, homogeneous. It doesn't look very well at multiple time frames. It makes investment decisions over the longer term very hard because you don't have a good way of hedging against the locational issues. And it gives you a lot more volatility at that point on the network. So if you were to bring that down to the distribution level, you also then have the social inequity concerns. Now, those could be dealt with. You could apply this kind of framework just for the EV chargers or just for the new loads and not for the old. There are many countries where they have nodal pricing for generation, but not for demand. And effectively, what happens is the demand has a cross subsidy. So you can play with, in economics, what is the marginal price? which doesn't have to necessarily reflect what is the average price. You can make compensation payments to customers if they're just in an area where the prices turn out to be higher on average. But it does require you to have a very centralist set of market arrangements. And I don't believe in our future diverse world that we are moving towards a very centralist set of arrangements for everything. I don't think we can have an all-size um, all singing, all dancing, sort of one size fits all, comprehensive nodal pricing system. Maybe future computing technology and comms technology will allow it. I mean, I'm most interested in looking at a diversity of marketplaces. So I'm thinking more about cybersecurity and resilience now. There are two forms of defense. One world is that you put everything you value inside a castle and you build very high walls. And I'm thinking cybersecurity here. And that's sort of the old-fashioned system operation arrangements. If you look at National Grid's dispatch control, their EDL system, it's on an isolated network, be incredibly difficult to tap to hack into. As we move to using, you know, millions of dispersed devices to help balance our system, we're actually moving away from that strategy of putting all of your valuables in a, in a castle with high walls. We're dispersing all of the control points. We're effectively increasing the attack surface area. Now, the other strategy in defense is to put your valuables in different places and make sure that if, you, if one of those places gets breached, you don't lose everything. And actually, the way we're doing things at the moment by allowing distributed resources to help with balancing, we're sort of in the worst of all worlds. 
we're making the castle much bigger with lots and lots of points to attack it, but we haven't got internal firewalls between the different elements. So what I'm interested in in local marketplaces is the ability that, you know, if you get a cyber attack somewhere, you don't lose the whole interconnected system, but you have the capability of, you know, self-healing networks and self-running networks in an island mode. So for me, this distributed energy future and these energy communities needs to move on to a world where we end up with much better resilience against, you know, whatever types of fault there are on the system, rather than having reliance on a central system and a central frequency, which under all circumstances is, you know, expected to be maintained. So last question, which uh, I think is a, is a difficult one, but I'll give it to you anyway. I'm just thinking this future world we're moving to, in terms of opportunities for existing and new participants, where should companies be looking, do you think? Where should companies be looking at investments at the current time? I think this is an incredibly tough time for energy investors. My personal view is that the market for generation is hugely, hugely competitive because as an investor in production, you're competing with me. I can put a solar panel on my roof and a battery in my basement. My marginal interest rate is 1% if I consider it to be a financial investment. And if I consider it to be a lifestyle choice and an environmental thing, maybe it's a negative hurdle rate. So. If you're really trying to compete with me as a professional investor, and I don't mean me, I mean me and millions of people like me, good luck in maintaining commercial returns. Networks are massively overpriced, in my opinion, and therefore it's not a good time to be investing in them. It might be a good time to sell them. The value is in the relationship with the customer. Most electricity customers pay between you know one and two euros a day for the electricity in their households. And I appreciate that many customers face poverty, and I won't use the word energy poverty. The word is poverty. Calling it energy poverty is a way of governments diverting attention from their own welfare policies. So many people face poverty, but there are many people for whom £1.50 a day is not a significant amount of money. And if you could get a significant percentage of those customers to express preferences for alternative ways of delivering energy, then there is some massive upside. The question is whether that upside is achievable by companies today, and it's whether it's achievable by, by the companies who are currently in the industry. So if that is an opportunity for somebody to come in and offer energy packaged in a different way, and by the way, I genuinely believe that's possible. I attended a branding conference in Iceland last year. If you ever want to restore your faith in the energy business, I recommend it highly. But in Iceland, they've managed to brand and you have to pay something like 80 euros to go in. The opportunity is to swim in an industrial waste pool. It's called the Blue Lagoon. The same thing goes with eggs. You look at eggs, they all look pretty much the same. They all taste pretty much the same. But we've moved away from bog standard eggs to something which are industrially produced free range eggs, for which some customers pay a premium. But some customers want eggs where they actually know that free range means free range. So they go to local farmers markets or they buy a plastic thing to put their own hens in and they have them in their own city gardens. So eggs are a, a sort of a homogenous product when you eat it. 
But the production process and the emotion that goes into that allows people to definitely charge a lot more for eggs in different circumstances. People have emotional opinions about electricity. I travel through the Cotswolds regularly, strike a conversation with anybody on the train about nuclear energy or wind farms, and I guarantee you will get something that's different to an indifferent response. So I'm convinced that energy companies or the new entrants will be able to capture value from the relationship with the customer. It probably isn't yet because I don't think the customers are yet ready to have that new relationship. My own view is that the energy business is going to be massively profitable for those companies who maintain a relationship with the customers, but they're going to go through some tough times. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I think that's been fascinating. And for all the listeners out there, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Please subscribe to listen to more in our series, Fueling the Energy Transition from A3 Management Consulting. Thanks and goodbye. Thank you.